Well, it's a real treat to be able to preach on sex last week and then money this week. Now, it, it, I think it's an incredibly important word today regarding the nature of finances, the nature of money. Um, I just pulled up this article probably three or four weeks ago about uh, the top ten Powerball winners and uh, how much they won and what happened to their lives after they won. And... Uh, it was just a litany of disasters, what it was. One in particular was extremely sad, uh, Billy Bob Harrell. He was a Pentecostal preacher, won $31 million in 1997. He was a, he was a bagger at a grocery store, and uh, he won all that money. He tried to start out modestly. He began lending all of his money to all these new friends that he had acquired. And uh, within 20 months, he was broke lost his wife to financial stress, committed suicide. How would you handle something that heavy in your life? You realize that the power of money can, can literally crush you. How would you handle it? Would you handle it differently? Would you, would you design a different scheme that you wouldn't end up that way? How are you handling your money now? I mean, money is on all of our minds most of the time. The Bible actually speaks about it a ton. In fact, the Bible speaks about money more than it does even heaven and hell. The Bible, particularly in Proverbs, remember Proverbs is a different type of book in the Bible. What Proverbs does is Proverbs is trying to give us wisdom so that we can live skillfully. So it's not speaking to the where some scriptures are clear, morally, right or wrong where there are moral precepts that are specifically addressed, Proverbs is much more of a living in the gray areas of life. It's trying to direct and guide us in the more gray areas. And, and we're going to find in Proverbs that it kind of steers a path between two errors, which I'm not even going to want to go to, but one error would be this, that God blesses with money and riches. And that if you have riches, then you're blessed of God. And the heroes for this group, by the way, would be Abraham, because he had a ton of stuff. And Job, he had a ton of stuff, too. See how God blesses them. Now, you might want to peel back the onion on Job's life a little bit and get a little balance there. But some people take that as an indication of godliness, that riches and finances are theirs. The other error, that's a theology of prosperity. And if you believe it, God's going to give it. just a matter of your faith. The other error is a theology of austerity which is that if you have wealth, you're sinful. And that godliness is somehow closer to God than having riches and wealth. Now, the heroes of this group would be, of course, Jesus, who had no place to lay his head. He didn't have a house, car, nothing. So he's kind of the hero of that group. Well, we want to steer a path through that and see what God's wisdom has on how do we handle our wealth? How do we handle it? I think you're going to be surprised because I think he promotes it initially. Now, I want to give you four pieces of a puzzle, if you will, and they're all going to work together, and you take one out, and it imbalances them. So the first thing is, I think that we ought to rejoice over the wealth that God pours into us through his grace. I want to rejoice over that and explain that to you, but then I want to be mindful that with that joy comes a call to be alert, to heed the dangers that are associated with wealth. There are clear dangers that we're going to talk about. 
And then thirdly, I want to look at the nature of wealth because when we fail to see the dangers, when we, we, we get into the dangers, when we fail to think this is what wealth is to do, there are limits to the value of wealth. And we need to know those limits or we really try to make it do something it can't. And then last, how to use it. How can we make some changes in our life that bring us more in line with this idea of wealth? So the first thing is we're going to rejoice over what God does in terms of giving wealth to his people. Now, I, again, we'll post online all the different verses. Because we're dipping and pulling from all different places in Proverbs, it's going to be hard for you to follow along, so I'll just post them online under their different headings and so you can get them later. But I'm reading from 1022 in terms of rejoicing over the value of wealth. He says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. So the blessing of the Lord makes rich. There's, there's value that God is choosing. To, it may, may surprise you that God promotes wealth among his people. Now, the wisdom that this comes from, of course, is in Genesis chapter 1. Let me try to explain, give you a little foundation. In Genesis chapter 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So there's nothing except God, his triune glory, and then he creates all things. All things. Same thing in 24, 1, Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, the world and those who live in it. So in other words, God owns it all. God's very rich. He even owns us. He owns all things. God is wealthy beyond imagination. Now, in his creation, he didn't create all this wealth, but he also created us to steward the wealth. This is called the creation mandate. In Genesis 1, 20, it's a theological term where God has created us to steward his creation. And we read it in Genesis 1, I want to read 26 and 28. He says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God has created all things and he's created us now to steward all things. This is the creation mandate, where you and I have been given the responsibility to bring God's creation to its fullness. That's wealth creation. Now, listen, God made everything perfect, but he didn't make everything complete. He's created us to bring to completion all that he's made. In other words, we're called to bring things to, to thriving and productivity and effectiveness. So let me give you some examples. The cobbler who makes shoes, he takes the resources of this creation that God has furnished, he's brought it together and makes a shoe. That is the way he brings glory to God. That's the way he images God. You work a restaurant, you make a delicious sandwich for a reasonable cost for the customer. That's glorifying God. That's imaging God. You're taking the, the resources of God, you're employing the talents that God has given you, the skills and the wisdom and the creativity and the ingenuity, and when you produce something, that's how you image God. It's hard work, it's diligent, but that's how God has designed us to be his vice regents in this world. And in doing so, you're going to naturally create wealth. It's going to produce, it's going to cause the earth to thrive. So, so that is, God intends for us to produce wealth. 
and to be wealthy in that sense. Now we're going to steer away from, I think, a modern understanding of it, but in using our gifts. Now, let me tell you, if you're a non-Christian here, this is a different view of the world than most of the world has. For example, Eastern religions, they don't see the world as God's furnishing resources to his vice regents to create things. So the Eastern view of the world would look at the world as simply the product of a cosmic battle between good and evil. And the earth is really the catastrophe or the remaining leftovers of the world. Or the Greco-Roman world. The Greco-Roman world would look at the earth as something really evil and subpar. In other words, you want to kind of move up to the spiritual world. In other words, everything in Greco-Roman religion was trying to break away from the physical and move to the spiritual or even the modern religion of today where we don't maybe believe in Eastern religion, perhaps we don't believe in the Greco-Roman religions, but, but what we look at is we just see the world as having really no owner. We're the owners right now. And when we die, someone else will own it. And we see the world as our stake of ground. And whatever you can do with the talents that you have your diligence, your hard work, produce a name for yourself. It's kind of every man, every woman for himself. That's the way many of us see the world. I'm here, this is my plot of turf, I'm going to make out of it what I can make out of it. Well, well that's very different from Christianity. Christianity is simply saying this, the world's God's, and you, for this time that you're breathing, are a steward of it. And your stewardship is to be exercised, to cultivate it, to bring it to its fullest potential its most glorious end. So if you're in finances, you're bringing propriety, you're bringing truth. If, if, you're, if you're not in finances, you're in computers, you're doing a hard day's work for the employer that's paying you, that you're not shortchanging hours, that you're taking the product that you've been given, whatever the task is, and you're putting all of your mind and all of your gifts and all of your talents into it. You, Martin Luther says you're a mask of God. So when they see you bettering things, working diligently, exercising integrity, they would see God in you. Dorothy Sayers, a, um, a writer, a novelist, says, for the carpenter, if you're a carpenter, make good tables. So 20 years, you're dead, the table's still working. It's still effective. That's how we image God. That's how we are stewarding God. So wherever you are, that's the great thing about Christianity. You can work in any field. Work in any field that you want. Just bring integrity, propriety, hard work, taking the gifts God's given you, and then move it. And that will produce. It always has, and it always will. But not just that. The Christian is a little different from us of the world because we see this hard work that we do, that I just explained, it creates wealth, and we see the wealth as a way to move against the brokenness and the poverty of this world. We see our creation of wealth as a means to alleviate the suffering of poverty. Please don't think for a minute that all poverty is related to slothfulness or being a sluggard. We will talk about that next week. But there is much poverty from abuse, parental abuse, from institutional evils, from just ruthless governments, create situations where people are stuck in certain places, no education, they can't progress because of their religion, their lack of opportunities, whatever. There is much institutional evil that has created poverty that we, the people of God, imaging God, are to create wealth to move against that poverty. So that's the real value. I mean, when we talk about wealth management, 
We are the image bearers of God, utilizing our gifts with God's creation to advance his glory by advancing his creation as well as helping those who have been broken under the wickedness and the fallenness of this world. So where are you on that? Do you see yourself as a, as a steward that you, that you are just caretaking these things of God? Or do you see them as an, as an owner? Do you look at them as an owner? Do you see yourself as a producer of wealth for the benefit of others? Or do you see yourself as a consumer? So when you get a raise, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Oh, I can now get that. Or I can buy that. Or I can get this. Or, or does your thought ever drift to who can I aid? Who can I help? How can I image God by the massive generosity of God? How can I give a faint reflection of it by how I move towards people? This might be a point of confession for us. This might be a point where we just stop and say, I've just been working for my name. It's been all about my career development. I haven't even thought about using God's gift. Maybe you're just blown away by this idea in terms of thinking, wow, okay, so it is all God's and I don't own it. And when you don't own it, you can always tell when someone doesn't own it. Because they hold on to it really tightly. Their, their knuckles get that whiteness to them. I don't want to let go of it. Now the steward, when the owner wants to use it, the owner being God, that is, when he wants to use it, then great, here it is. Kind of open-handed life as opposed to a tight fist at life. So that's the first thing I want you to consider. Are you an owner or are you a steward? Are you a consumer or are you a producer of the gifts, of the stuff that God's given you with your gifts? Okay, that, that will create wealth. It always has. It always has. In fact, Cotton Mather was an old Puritan preacher in New England in the 17th century, and he said this. And this is a quote I, I'm sure many of you have heard. He says, Religion begat prosperity, and the daughter devour the mother. Let me explain that. Religion begat prosperity. So the industry of religion, the hard work that religion calls for, the production using God's creation rightly, religion begat or gave birth to prosperity. It always has. It produces prosperity. But then the daughter, that is prosperity, devours the mother. In other words, there's dangers with us having wealth. The daughter, prosperity, consumes the faith. It can consume the faith. There are some dangers. I want to give you four dangers, and I want you to position yourself. Which one are you facing right now? Because we're all wealthy here. So it's uncomfortable to say that, isn't it? But we're all wealthy. We are. And it's uncomfortable because it implies a stewardship and a responsibility that we have to do with our wealth. So the first danger would be that wealth and the pursuit of it can foster greed and injustice. Greed and injustice. Let me give you a few Proverbs here. In Proverbs 11.1, 1, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Now, a false balance. So, you know, think about it. You go to the market. You've got a scales. You've got two parts to the scale. You put your pound of hamburger on there, and they put a weight on there that says one. Okay, now you're thinking you're paying for one pound of hamburger, but he manipulated those weights, and that one is really only half a pound. So what you're doing is you're paying twice for the meat. And so that is a false balance. It's not giving a fair product 
at a fair price. And what, what Solomon says is a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. He says that in the pursuit of wealth, God is opposed to illegal, unethical, inappropriate, and deceitful business practices. He likens it to an abomination. May I remind you that sexual sin, that is adultery, is also an abomination to God. So he's saying here that doing business poorly is like committing adultery, that God sees the same. You may be perfectly pure in your marriage, but you're cheating like crazy in business. He says the same thing. Please don't sit in self-righteousness over the purity of your marriage when you're not working a full day in business or where you're hiding information about the product that you're trying to sell on Craigslist or, or as in, in keeping news from investors that may scare them off from investing. I mean, all of this demands a propriety and an integrity. And, and when you're in business, whatever business you may be in, when we begin shortchanging with information, when we begin denying fair treatment of the customer or, or legitimate treatment of whatever we're charging them, that's false business. It, but it can even be more subtle than that. He says in 11.26, he says, The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. And what's that mean? Well, the people curse him who holds back the grain. He's saying there are some people that will hold their product back. In this case, he's holding back grain. Grain's necessary. It's the basis of life. He holds back the grain so that grain goes scarce on the market, and when supply goes down, demand goes up, price goes up, profits go up. So he holds back grain, waiting for the prices to rise, and then he sells it. What's he saying here? He's saying that God is opposed to us when we make our bottom line profits the end-all and be-all of business. That, 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 that we're not caring about the community. We're not caring about the customer. That, that we're just concerned about bottom line. Now, we need to make profit. There's no doubt about that. But we know that there's a profit, and there's really a gouging that produces a bigger profit. It's a warning. The desire for wealth increases greed, and it leads us to injustice. Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, wrote this. Very interesting, and this is written over 100 years ago. He says, what induces, and he was no friend of Christianity, what induces one man to use false weights, another to set his house on fire after having insured it for more than its value, while three-fourths of our upper class indulge in legalized fraud, what gives rise to all this? It is not real want, for their existence is by no means precarious, but they are urged on day and night by the terrible impatience at seeing their wealth pile up so slowly, and by an equally terrible longing and love for these heaps of gold. What once was done for the love of God is now done for the love of money. It breeds in us a greed. But there's more dangers. The other danger is that you grow proud and you go arrogant. Success and accomplishments that produce wealth and that create in you a greater desire for more wealth, you begin to implicitly congratulate yourself. Look at how I did in that meeting. It's my ingenuity and my creativity and my hard work, my wit, my answer in the business meeting that wealth can create within us this idea that we are beginning to produce the wealth. And not only that, 
But when we begin to become wealthy, we begin to think more highly of ourselves and we implicitly look down on those with less. Because now we're in different circles of people. We get to eat at different restaurants. We get to live in finer homes. We get to drive nicer cars. And before you know it, these other people begin to be less people than we are. And, and there's, this, there's this danger that even we begin to forget about God. That's what we read in the 30th chapter of Proverbs. He says, here's the prayer in Proverbs. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? In other words, we begin to think, look at what I've done. Wow, I had a great answer in that business meeting. And you begin to think it's all about you. That's what success and wealth, that's a danger of it. I'm not saying don't pursue wealth. I just said that it's your call. It's a creation mandate. But be aware that it produces a sense of superiority and self-righteousness that is blinding from you to see God. Hey, another, another danger, another danger would be that you, you supplant your faith in God with your trust in riches. Here's what he says in chapter 28.11, excuse me, in uh, 18.11, he says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall in his imagination. Notice the irony that the rich man, now the rich man in that, this case, is not the righteous man. He's the wealthy man, but he's not the righteous man. He, it says, a rich man, wealth, is his strong city. In his mind, his wealth, his pension fund, the diversification of it, the strong military, everything that's protecting his wealth is to him a strong city. That's what's defending him, or the high walls. So if you're living in this day and this time, you need walls. If you didn't have walls, you'd be invaded, you'd be run over. But his trust is resting in his wealth as if it were a strong city. There's this supplanting. I'm no longer, as my wealth increases, my trust in God needs to decrease. That's what happens. There's an inverted relationship. This is a real danger. In fact, he says in, in 11.28, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, will fall. That, that, that is, folks, it is, it is a warning for us. I mean, it is a danger. The more money you have, the greater ease you take. It's just, it's easier. Look at all that I have. I think Judas is actually kind of instructive for us here. You know, Judas is one of the 12 apostles. And Jesus chose Judas to be an apostle, and he chose Judas to carry the money bag. Now, you know Judas was a thief. So it's kind of interesting why Jesus would choose a thief to carry the money bag. Why would he do that? Well, let me give you two reasons why he might. Number one, Judas is a, is a good example for us in that he looked religious. He walked with Jesus. He preached. He, went around, he lived with them. I mean, if you were to see Judas, he's one of the 12. Look at him. And yet his heart was sold for the money bag, helping himself, loving money. You can be very religious and be deeply in love with money, trusting in it, finding in it your hope and your joy and your happiness. But this story is also instructive for us because when you look at Jesus, why in the world would he pick a thief to handle the money bag? Well, one reason could be that he is showing us what it means to trust God 
for everything, even when a thief is over the money bag. Isn't that ironic? Jesus can trust God for everything he needs, even with a thief over the money bag. I mean, you think about marriage. Well, I can't really try. I can't follow my husband because he's not a good leader. God is the leader. We can trust God in all things. We don't want to trust riches. That's what he's warning us about. If you build up wealth because of the industry and the use of God's gifts, imaging God to the world, boy, I tell you, it's a slow slide, but God pulls out and money takes his place. Can't serve God in money, right? The last warning is this. Last danger associated with wealth is, is that it can blind us, or let me just say distract us, from eternal realities. So he says in 11.4, Proverbs 11.4, well, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. In other words, when you begin to get wealthy, and you begin to be industrious and productive and you're doing what God has wanted you to do and you start producing things, life gets busy. It really does. It gets busy keeping up with what you're doing. And then you begin making more and you begin spending more and then you have to begin managing what you're spending and then you begin worrying about that which you're now managing and and it gets into this distractive cycle that really confuses you and distracts you from what's coming down the road, which is your day of standing before God. Every one of us in here will see that day. I don't know when, but we're going to see the day. But, but life gets so busy, particularly managing, that all of a sudden it blinds you from approaching the day. And Jesus warns us of this in Luke chapter 12. He tells that story. If you remember, two boys were squabbling over the inheritance they were getting. So he tells them a parable about this man. And Jesus is very clear to say his land produced much. So the land is given credit for the production. But then here's what the man says. He says, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, do you notice all the eyes and my's when it's the land that produced it? There was no thankfulness to God. There was a complete distractedness to now it's his to manage. He says, and I will say to my soul, now this is kind of eerie, but he says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, boy, that sounds like a nice retirement, doesn't it? Eat, drink, and be merry. That's a lot of what, that's what we say, don't we? Kind of. He says, but God said, you fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? I mean, it's really, it's alarming the distractiveness of it. And and we can almost become ingratiated with it and feel like it's a new form of happiness. In fact, C.S. Lewis warns us about this. He says, says, one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness money can give and so fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, you you may forget that at every moment you are totally dependent upon God. So, I mean, it's just a warning. These are dangers. That's all they are. So I've tried to balance it now. Remember, we need all the pieces of the puzzle here. The reality is you are called to to work diligently and to create wealth as an image bearer of God for the needs of others. But watch it 
Because when you begin to acquire that wealth, you're going to be tempted into greed. You're going to be tempted into thinking more highly of yourself. You're going to be tempted to trust more in what you have produced rather than who he is. And you're more tempted to be distracted from the realities of your eternal day before God. Friends, I I think we can all admit that, that greed is a struggle for us. We live in a culture of greed. Now, here's the problem. Tim Keller makes this point. He said that greed is one of those problems we really have trouble finding within ourselves. Well, we can admit to lusting over girls or lusting over men. Uh, We we can agree that we probably have too much pride and we have anger issues. We, We can admit to those things. But few of us admit to greed. What we tend to do is we look at our lives and, and we say, yeah, I mean, we're doing well. We're doing pretty well. But we always look up the ladder for those who have a lot more than we do. And we say, yeah, but if I had another 10 grand, boy, <laughs> it would get me out of a world of hurt. Just 10 grand. That's all I need. I'll really be happy. And we always look up the ladder and we say, we really aren't that wealthy. So a survey was done in the U.S. And the question was put to people, do you think you live in the upper class? Are you in the upper class? Out of all of America, the survey group, only 2% of the people said, we are upper class. Now, if we took that survey and brought the world in to say, how does America live? What would they say? I mean, they would be offended. We are all rich, most of us. I know that there are some that are really struggling but the majority of us are rich. Let's just admit that. Let's admit it. Let's admit that we have vast more than any other country. Let's just admit it. I know it's difficult because it does imply that sense of responsibility. Now that I've admitted I'm rich, I really need to manage what I have. It's always easier to make money than it is to manage money. Do you realize that? It's easier to make it than the manager because now you've got to think, how am I going to spend my money? Folks, we, we want to we just stop and, and recognize this and say, God, we need help here. This is when we appeal to God for mercy and grace. We have succumbed to the danger. We have. We are struggling with greed. Let's just admit that right up front and, uh, and then continue to see his word for how we can move ourselves towards a position of righteousness. So, so that's the danger. Now, I think if we don't recognize the dangers, I think the reason that we have fallen into this trap of dangers is I don't think we know the true purpose of wealth. In other words, we're trying to get wealth to do what it can't do. Let me just give you a couple ideas of what wealth cannot do. Let me remind you of what wealth cannot do. Number one, wealth cannot develop character. You know this. Wealth can't develop character. So the proverb is, Solomon says, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Now again, this is wisdom from God that's helping us move in a fallen world towards greater godliness. Listen to what I said. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and favor. What this means is that you are to be about, and I am to be about, more character development than career development. But we are just beelining the career development. We want to make, make, make. We want to be, be, be. And we don't develop our character towards godliness. I mean, this is where we need to challenge ourselves. Am I, am I trying to get more out of money? Am I letting go of the development of my character towards godliness and righteousness rather than developing my 
Yeah, I may have twisted those a bit. Am I spending more time developing my career? And I'm paying the price by not developing my character. You know, many of you have heard the example that few people on their deathbed said, gee, I wish I put more hours in the office. They wish at that point that they develop more character. Where is your character with God? I mean, are you developing, how are you pursuing your character and the development of it? How are you moving towards greater godliness? I, I, I can see, many of you are wildly successful in your careers, but how about the character? So if five years ago you're no different than you are, you don't really have a greater love for God, you don't really feel a desire to be more generous with what you have, you don't have a greater passion to see him, you don't have a deepened love for the word, after five years now, after ten years, then what have you been developing? And, and I'm just going to warn you that, that money can't develop that. It can distract you from it, but it can't develop. Secondly, money can't last. I mean, money just doesn't last. Solomon writes, <clears throat> he says, do not toil to acquire wealth. He says, when your eyes light on it, it's gone, for it suddenly sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. It moves fast. You can't hold on to wealth. Gene Veith is an academic and a, uh, a, public, a, a, um, a writer. Here's what he wrote. This is a personal testimony back in 2009. He says, not long ago, I learned that 38% of my retirement account has vanished and my house is suddenly worth less than the mortgage I'm paying on it. I wasn't wasteful. I wasn't reckless. I didn't vandalize my own home or spend my life saving on riotous living. But all of a sudden... Through no particular fault of my own, a major part of my stash of money simply disappeared. That was just the crash in 2008. Just gone. He didn't do anything wrong. Market just turned. Went wrong way. Boom. It's gone. Money can't last. When you lean on it, it'll, it'll go. It won't support you. We don't want to look to money to be an aid to life as if I, that's going to support me. Another thing money can't do is it can't um, prevent disaster. It can't prevent heartache for you. You know this. I mean, money doesn't stop the brokenness of the world and the effects of sin from coming in your life. I don't care. Many of you are very educated, some less so. Many of you are very wealthy, some less so. Many of you have many opportunities, some less so. It doesn't change it. I mean, cancer comes to all of us. Market downturns come to all of us. Oil prices, money doesn't change any of that. It, it doesn't help you. It, it's, yeah, as a... Working as a CPA, uh, I, would ha I, I was struck, even before really walking with God, I remember that some of the most unhappy people were the rich ones because they had to manage so much. They had so much that they had to manage and control, and they were unhappy people. And it didn't prevent heartache from them. They still had the same sufferings that a guy making 15000 bucks a year did. So it, it can't prevent that. And, and last, most importantly, Wealth can't save you. It, it can't bring forgiveness to you. It, it can't save you from death. It can't save you from God's righteous wrath. It can't, it can't fulfill your ultimate needs. It just can't do it. It isn't designed for it. I, I quoted that passage in 11.4 where he says, Riches don't profit in the day of wrath. So, so <clears throat> yeah, it can't save you. I, I, mean, think, I, I love it when they always discover those Egyptian tombs, you know. And they pull out, and they've got weapons in there, they've got food in there, and they've got gold in there, and they've got all the guy's bones in there that he's think I'm taking it with me. It, he didn't take it with him. You know, the old expression, 
The question was when John D. Rockefeller, just a fabulously wealthy man, when he died, they said, well, how much did he leave? How much did he leave? He left all of it. I mean, he didn't take any of it. All of it stayed. None of it went. I mean, it doesn't save you. It doesn't prepare you in the day of wrath. And when we begin to think upon it as such, we are only going to be deluded and we're only going to be eternally disappointed. So for the, for the non-Christian here and, and for the Christian that slipped into it, when you say, I have money problems, I would say, money is not your problem. It's not. It's, it's, if you're trying to get something out of money that it can't give you, if you're trying to find friends, or you're trying to make new social circles, or if you're trying to get happiness, or if you're trying to get health, or if you're trying to get a right place, money can't do those things for you. Money can never serve you in that capacity. I mean, it's, taking some, it's like trying to pound a nail with an iPhone. It doesn't work. When you try to get something out... It's that slow roll again, honey. <laughs> when you try to get something out of money that it cannot do for you, you are bound to be disappointed over and over and over again. Now, let me say this to the Christian. These things are good. I want happiness. I want friends. I want these. I, I want comfort. I want to have a, a measure of help in this life. No doubt about that. But I don't want to go to money for that. I want to go to Christ for that. And this is the word for the Christian. Jesus Christ is what we need. Now, I don't mean to all of a sudden flip spiritual on you. I mean this legitimately. A, a firm, founded faith upon Christ who is my righteousness, who is my peace, who is everything for me. You know, when Paul gives that verse in Philippians 4.13, you know the verse, everybody misquotes it, right? I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That's like the, I call it the Popeye verse, because when I need a batch of spinach to get strong and fly over and do everything, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We pull it out for anything. Well, I can't dig a hole. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's unbelievable. It's like a spiritual vitamin pill. This thing, no matter what you're facing, just call that one out and you're good to go. Well, let me read the context to you. He says this. He says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any, in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's saying that Christ is sufficient for him when he has plenty. Christ is still the best. When he has less, Christ is still what I need. I can do all things. I can suffer once. I can enjoy abundance. But Christ is still the center of my life. That's what the verse is about. It's not digging a hole. It's moving through life, being generous, suffering, having wealth. Incredibly different than the way I think we generally understand it. So, so, so let me move us now. I've, I've given you three pieces of the puzzle. One is that, listen, the real value of wealth is it's a good thing. Use the gifts of God. Be industrious. Promote his glory as you image him. Produce much for his glory. And do it with an aid to others. Others have got to be in your mind. But watch the dangers. The dangers are there. It's going gonna, it's gonna to tend to bleed towards corruption and towards self-absorption. It's going to move towards supplanting God. And it's going to move towards distracting you from eternal realities. Don't try to get out of money what it can't do. It can't develop your character. But you need to develop that. 
It, it can't sustain you in life. It can't preclude you from disaster. It can't save you. So what do we do? Here's the last piece of the puzzle. Here's what we do. And, and I'll be brief about these, but I want you to think about it. What I'm doing is I'm not going to give you three steps to financial management. I, I'm, I'm not saying this because the church needs money. I want you to think about, and I'm going to stay somewhat at 10,000 foot level, so you have to think about this. You have to pray about this. Okay, the first thing I would say is just ask God for grace and help to be content with what you have. So the only prayer in Proverbs comes in chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. He says, two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Listen to that. He's speaking to God now. Can you imagine yourself standing before God, and here's what you say, two things I ask of you, please don't deny them to me before I die. Please give them to me. I really need these things, Father. That's how he's praying. He says, remove from me falsehood and lying. That's a good start for us. All men are liars. That's a good start. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Can you ask God for that? Can you ask God for a measure of content? It doesn't mean you get rid of everything you have. Listen, if every rich person gave everything they had away, who's going to take for those in poverty? Who's going to care for them? So God doesn't ask that. But is there contentment? Is there a godliness with what we have? Ask God for that. Fight the urge to always keep up with the Joneses. Someone else has a new lawnmower. Yeah, my lawnmower is kind of lousy. And you go need a new lawnmower. Pray for contentment. Secondly, be gracious to those who are in poverty. Solomon warns us. He says this. He says, the poor use entreaties. You know, they're pleading because they need such help. But the rich answer roughly. There's that sense of it. There's that sense of arrogance that we can have when we have a lot. You know, you, you drive by the side of the road and the guy's on the side holding the sign homeless. And what's your first thought? That guy's probably making 40 grand a year. Or you're thinking, he's probably making more than I am. Or, hey, they only come out in the sun, they don't come out in the rain. Or the guy's got a better umbrella than I do. And, and there's a certain gracelessness to us when we see people like that. Not every single one of them is making 30 or 40 grand. There's a certain degree of arrogance that we can face with much. I'm not saying that that is the best position to take, but it begins in our hearts. In fact, Solomon warns us, he says, he says, the poor man and the oppressor meet together. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. God is God of both. So there ought to be a graciousness to us, kind of a brokenness. And, and, then, and then last, I would ask you to consider your generosity. Consider your generosity. Now, I want your minds with me for a minute because I, I want to share something that's going to be kind of counterintuitive. He says in 11.24, so I want you to consider how generous really are you. In 11.24, he says, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers one. So it's counterintuitive because he's saying one who gives freely seems to gain a lot, and those who hold it back 
They seem to suffer want. In other words, it's kind of paradoxical. He's saying, cast it freely and you gain much. Keep it together and you lose much. That's a paradox. A paradox is, a, is an apparent contradiction, but it's not. The farmer knows this, right? If he doesn't scatter the seed, if he doesn't scatter it widely, he doesn't get a large crop. Paul says that. Whoever sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. Whoever sows generously, reaps generously. So the principle is this, is to give generously is to be wild with it. Now, I mean that uh, recognizing that you may need counsel of your brothers and sisters in terms of new plans that you may make after the sermon. But actually, the Hebrew word does mean to throw it broadly and to throw it generously, that we're called to be generous with what we have. If you think, well, I tithe, Tom. I, I mean, I give my 10%. If you're keeping a law, thinking, well, I'm going to give 10% because God's going to give it back to me. I, I had a, a relative who gave 500 bucks to a, a, a thief on television, otherwise known as a prosperity preacher, but he gave 500 bucks. And I said, why? He said, well, he promised me eight fold back if I gave it. So a good investment. I mean, who can get 8% that quick? I mean, that's a great investment. That's not giving generously. Giving generously is giving without expectation of return. Will God bless you? Absolutely. He's already said he would. But we don't give to get. That's just a form of gathering. We're to be scattering. And you know where I'm going to go. When you think about Jesus Christ, and Paul picks us up in the same chapter in 2 Corinthians, he says this. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the gospel. The gospel is this willingness to enter poverty. It's a willingness to sacrifice to get others healthy and better. And we have the freedom to do it because of his promise to us. This is where our faith is displayed. Do you trust in the promises that I'll never leave you nor forsake you? Then you can be generous. Now, what that looks like in your individual life, that's what I'm asking you to pray about. But to be generous with it, with what you have, not just cash, but perhaps with time or with other talents you have. So, so let, let, me just, let me just call you to, to confess your stinginess. I know you call it frugality, but, but many of us, I think it's stinginess. Confess it. We're in denial. We're in denial. If you make over $50,000 a year, you're in the top 4% wage earners in the world. Confess it. Let's, let's stop beating around the bush. We are rich. Father, we, we know we're rich. Let's confess that. And then secondly, challenge the generosity that you exercise. Look at yourself. Am I truly giving? C.S. Lewis kind of gives us a little bit of a paradigm. He says this, I don't believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts and luxuries and amusements is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they're too small. There ought to be some things that we should like to do and cannot because our charitable expenditure excludes them. So challenge yourself. And then last, just consider the riches of the gospel. We've been talking about all the material stuff here, but he has blessed us with untold blessings. We've been chosen in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and, and blameless. Read Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14. Let's ask God now for grace and wisdom. We're praying corporately. That means we're praying for one another. Let's pray briefly. 
This is, we are an outpost of heaven. We're going to be speaking with God face to face. We're together as a body. Do you realize that if Revelation 5 seems to indicate that we are worshiping now before God as the saints who have passed are now worshiping God? We're worshiping together. So let's join in that and let's, let's issue forth words of confession or petition before him. And we do this on behalf of each one of us. So pray briefly, loudly, so we can agree with you. I'll start and an elder will close. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us in Jesus. Thank you that he did not regard equality with you, a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself, becoming a servant so that we might be rich.